Okay, so last week, we wished a happy birthday to Jillian Anderson. Yes. And my mother. Yes. And Riley. Yes. So this week, I feel like it would be incredibly negligent of us to not wish a very happy birthday. To Charlie, because it's her birthday today. To Charlie, because it's her birthday yesterday. Whatever. Theater of the mind. So happy birthday, Charlie. (laughs) She's two. She's two. And also me. That's right. On Sunday, I turn Reggie Jackson. That's 44. <laughs> I was, for people who don't know. I was like, who is this person that doesn't age? <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't work. 44, you're old. Oh, I know. We're entering that magical four-month period where my my age is six more than yours. Such Makes me feel old, skeezy. I'm such an old man. Are you going to have a midlife crisis this year? I can't afford to. Why not? I don't know. Okay. Because I, I had that a long time ago. I, did, <laughs> I didn't plan on living to 88. Well, what'd you do for your midlife crisis? Yeah, I drank a lot. Ugh, so you don't remember? <laughs> don't remember. <laughs> Great. I didn't have enough money to buy a sports car or anything. Yeah, that seems pretty typical. Also, I had the sports cars when I was young, so... That's fancy. I mean, yeah, fancy to buy a 1984 Camaro in 1997. I had a 1989 Saab. It had a moonroof that opened. Ooh, mine had T-tops. Oh, and some boy at high school called it uh, the penis car. The p- <laughs> What? He thought it looked like a penis. Oh. I never understood it. I currently don't understand it but there you go there is a memory that i have from my school (laughs) all right hooray for memories i guess so i remember my friend jim priest had an eight track player in his monte carlo holy hell yeah it was pretty sweet i'm not even certain i've ever seen an eight track really oh see my parents also had one when i was young wow so i i knew i knew how awesome they were (laughs) were they how did they work you th- well, you put the giant... Have you, so I've you seen know the how 8-track. Big the, okay, yeah. So you, it's just like a cassette player. You okay. put that giant cartridge in. Does it have tape in it, like a yeah, cassette like, tape? Like okay. cassette tape, except it's like fatter. Fat tape. It's like Thick. VHS. Oh, weird. <laughs> yeah. How wild. Yeah. Ugh. Well, now I have the song Forever Young in my head. Oh, well. Uh, tune into the uh, Cast Files Spotify playlist. To see which version of the song Forever Young <laughs> is going to end up on there this week. Yes, it won't be the one in my head because I think it's just my voice in there. Oh. <laughs> well, we could lay down that track. No thanks. Get it on Spotify in a no. day. No, 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 no. I think it's a great idea. It's Write us and tell us it's a great idea. It's not. I'm busy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So remember, we're still in August. So we are donating 10 cents to every stream to the Tampa International Gay Lesbian Film Festival. It showcases a selection of compelling film and video by, for, and about the LGBT community that entertains, enlightens, and empowers. And if you go to their website, they are actually starting to list some of their fall movies, and you'll be able to stream them since it looks like those of us here in Florida are going to be under quarantine again or self-imposed quarantine because our governor is nope not a dumb baby he doesn't get that he's just a ronald death sentence Ugh, just ugh. there's not even words just such a moron 
Yeah. But like worse than moron. Worse than moron. This is a family podcast, so I can't say what I want. Is it? It is. That's why I cut. I reverse all the cuss words. I know. I think it's pretty funny. I think it's extra funny when you miss them. <sighs> I don't think that's ever happened. <laughs> I've never made a mistake. <sighs> all right. So you ready to get into this one? Yeah, sure. Let's do it. Greetings, listeners, domestic, international, and extraterrestrial. I'm Dave Reed. And I'm Kristen Riley. And this is The Cast Files. I'm a nerd who somehow never saw The X-Files. And I watched it when it originally aired. The Cast Files is a podcast where we're watching and discussing every episode of The X-Files, spoiler-free. Today we are talking about Season 1, Episode 16, Young at Heart. It originally aired February 11th, 1994, to a viewership of 11.5 million people. So this is their Valentine's Day special. Oh, it sure is. (laughs) It it was written by Scott Coffer and Chris Carter himself. Oh. Directed by Michael Lang. I believe it's the first time we've seen his name. Yeah, it doesn't sound familiar familiar to me at all. Mm. No. Well, joining us in this cast, we have... Dick Anthony, a.k.a. Agent Reggie Perdue. Liked him. He was in Edward Scissorhands. I cannot think of who he was in Edward Scissorhands. Then you might remember him from the CBS School Break special, What About Your Friends? I do remember that one. <laughs> he was one of my friends. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Alan Boyce, a.k.a. Young John Barnett. He was in something called Totally Effed Up. <laughs> And something else called Nowhere, where he played the character named Handjob. Yeah, I accidentally, not accidentally, because it was on purpose, but I actually looked him up too, because one of the guys, maybe you'll get to him, sounded familiar. Mm. He didn't look familiar to me, but he sounded familiar. So I looked him up and then just kind of... Kept going. Clicked around, yeah. We have Christine Estabrook, who is Agent Henderson. She is in... (laughs) Is that a gun in your pocket? (laughs) And she was also in American Horror Story Murder House. Ooh, Murder House. You didn't watch that with me. I didn't watch. Any of it. Uh, 1984. This is the only American ah. Horror Story I watched. Okay. And then Graham Jarvis is the NIH doctor. He was in Misery and Red Bull Romaniacs. I've said Romaniacs 11 different ways inside my head. Okay. And you know who I didn't include? Uh, Crandall. Yep. I didn't include Crandall. He's the one who sounded familiar to me. And for some reason, I was thinking the miniseries The Stand, the original uh, one. okay. No, he was not in that. <laughs> so, I have no idea where I remember it from. He was in one episode of Highlander. Okay. Which I'm sure I saw. Yeah. But, and then, like, one episode of Psych, which I definitely saw. Okay. Don't remember it from that, though. <laughs> but he, he was in, like, one episode of a bunch of things I saw, but I have no idea. All right. So, that's all I have for the cast. The IMDb blurb says, A criminal believed to have died in prison years earlier wages a vendetta against Mulder. That's a good description. It's fine. It works. So our opening scene is in Tashmu Federal Correctional Facility in Pennsylvania in 1989. We see a wheelchair-bound man named Joe Crandall who slowly rolls down a hallway past an empty bed that intrigues him. He hears screaming and heads in that direction. The screaming grows louder as he approaches a door. He opens the door and goes inside, where he sees Dr. Ridley working over a man called John Barnett. And they have a brief conversation. It's basically, 
what are you doing? And get out of here. Basically that. And then the doctor has amputated John Barnett's arm. And Dr. Ridley threatens Joe Crandall with a scalpel to the throat. We see John Barnett blinking his milky dead eyes twice. And Joe Barnett leaves the room. Crandall's not too bright. This entire scene is just him making stupid decision after stupid decision. First of all, why is he allowed to just wheel around the prison after hours by himself? I don't know. I don't know where he was coming from or where he was going. And there was nobody walking the halls or anything. I don't know. Then he's like, oh, it's spooky here. They're screaming. I'm going to go investigate. (laughs) And then it's a doctor cutting on a guy. And he's like, hey, you shouldn't cut on that guy. (laughs) It's a doctor going, hey, you should go away now. And he's like, but hey, you shouldn't cut. That's my friend. Don't cut on him. And then he gets threatened. It's it's a series of escalatingly stupid decisions. Then we get the opening credits, and we're in Washington, D.C., present day. Mulder and Scully get out of their car and start into a jewelry store. They meet Reggie Perdue, who tells them a lone gunman took a sales girl after she filled up a bag for him. Purdue shows Mulder an evidence bag with a piece of paper in it. Mulder reads the paper while Scully asks what it is. And apparently the shooter was Barnett, who died in 1989, a.k.a. the opening scene. Some exposition happens. It was Mulder's first case. Barnett was doing armed jobs all over the D.C. area and getting away with it. He was very trigger happy. He killed seven people. There was a big task force. Reggie was his ASAC heard of that but i don't know what it stands for and i didn't look it up he was Mulder was 28 years old right out of the academy and he had a theory on the case but reggie thought he was full of it and Mulder says i was full of it the note also says fox can guard the chicken coop in really nice handwriting way better than mine yes so that's basically that scene now immediately right off the bat i noticed they gave Mulder a new haircut and they have him really cleanly shaven. They are trying to make him look young in this episode. Oh, is that what they're doing? That's how I read it. They are trying to make him look young. Not just young at heart. No, like inexperienced. Well, whatever is happening, it works on the lady in the next scene because we go to the crime labs where Mulder is being sexually harassed by the handwriting analysis lady. I liked her. She's fun. She was fun. And Mulder... The guy who's always bringing porn around the office. I, yeah. I think she knows he's, I don't want to say fair game's not the right way to say that, but he's definitely not going to be offended by playful banter like this. Yeah, I have mixed feelings about it because if the roles were reversed, it would be just creepy as hell and I would hate it. And so I don't really like it. Don't do this in the workplace. No. Is basically, I think, where I've fallen on this. <laughs> it's, it's a good place to fall. You know? No sexual harassment in the workplace. Seems like a reasonable uh, philosophy. Yeah, I agree. Everybody should get on board. I'm tired of it. (laughs) (laughs) Then we go to Reggie Perdue's office. So in the meantime, that's where Scully is. She's watching a video where they, Mulder and another agent, which isn't LaManna, though we did see him in Werewolves Within the night before. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) So Mulder wasn't with LaManna, which I for a while thought that he should have been at this point. But then David said, we don't know when they work together. They just worked together in the, what, high crimes and super fun times crime unit. (laughs) That's the one. (laughs) They caught Barnett. Barnett? I spelled it wrong here. It took place while staking out an airport warehouse. Mulder doesn't follow the rules anymore because of this particular scenario where he didn't take out Barnett because the hostage was too close. 
and that's what the books say. So he shot Barnett in the shoulder and hand, and Barnett killed the driver and agent Steve Wallenberg. And Mulder is not over Steve Wallenberg, and we never know what the driver's name is. <laughs> he was Driver. That was his name. Oh. It was Adam Driver's dad. You know what? I'm sorry. His name was Driver, <laughs> and I've been, oh, misassociating him. So, uh, Scully is getting some backstory. This is the exposition scene for Scully. And Purdue is filling her in on why this whole case is really important to Mulder. Fine. In the next scene we're in, FBI headquarters, Mulder tells Scully Henderson is 95% sure it's Barnett's handwriting. Henderson is the handwriting analysis lady. We all know Barnett is supposed to be dead because they have a death certificate, so being 95% sure it's his handwriting at the scene of a crime that just took place is like, oh, X-Files question marks. Scully lets Mulder know Purdue showed her the tape and told her the backstory of Barnett. Mulder is extra upset because Wallenberg's son is an all-star football player, which means he deserves parents more than children who don't play football. Oh, yeah. If his kids were just losers, then it'd be fine. That Wallenberg guy's dead. Uh, Again, no mention of the driver who has died. That person isn't even given a name, I said. But cop plus footballer equals lifelong regret. Yeah. So I did some math this time. Oh, good job. And here we get into my favorite segment that I have been waiting. I've been more excited about this segment than about this whole episode. So we are going to Science Corner. Are you ready? Science Corner with Kristen. Yep. And we're going to do handwriting analysis. I found some really good information on How Stuff Works, that website, which is great. Uh, So a little bit of overview, and then I have a story for you. Oh. So how is writing analysis performed? because we need to know what we're looking at. Writing analysis is a form of comparison between two or more pieces of writing where experts look for potential similarities or differences to determine whether they were written by the same person. Makes sense. It could also include characteristic style and tone. Okay. So just kind of setting the stage here. Setting the tone. Yes. Can handwriting be used as evidence? I included this because it's very important with the X-Files. We've seen handwriting analysis. Is this the third time? Is it? It's the, it's the third or fourth time we've seen it in 16 episodes. Oh, man, I don't remember the other ones. That's why I had to I had to do something. So experts disagree if it can be used as evidence. Some prosecutors believe that writing analysis can be legitimate evidence, while others think it is subjective or junk science. So there's people on all have all kinds of opinions about it, which to me makes it not evidence. But I'm also not a doctor. And I'm not, I'm not a doctor and I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> I don't know why I said doctor. Or a doctor cop lawyer. Nope. I would think that if there are just a significant amount of people that say, no, it's junk science, then it shouldn't be evidence as long as there's that significant right. portion. I agree. So that gets us to how accurate is forensic handwriting analysis. And the exact error rate for forensic examination of documents doesn't exist. So it's hard to know if, if that, if it's like 50, 50, if it's leaning one way or another. However, a lay person is six times more likely to make errors and wrongly identify distinctive writing features than a trained professional. So it seems like it could be an element to get you closer to the answer that you're trying to get or to rule somebody out completely as having written the thing. If you have other people, but it doesn't feel like it should be the the nail in the coffin to that person. That seems reasonable. There's also a couple of characteristics of good handwriting analysis, and that includes word spacing, line quality, consistency, connecting strokes, pen lifts, cursive letters, 
writing pressure, complete letters, diacritics, embellishments, slants, and baseline habits. And I mention that because she does mention almost all of those in the lines that she's given for, for her part. So that's pretty interesting. But a couple of things that could change your handwriting. You can't make a meaningful comparison between uppercase and lowercase letters. Isn't that weird? Hmm. Drugs, exhaustion, or illness can significantly alter a person's handwriting, which makes sense. Yeah. In this episode, they're talking about, could it be him? It's obviously him because they're using, I guess they have exemplars, which is the example piece of paper to compare this new note to. Yeah, they've got his old notes. So they have his old notes, but they ha- and they have his new note, but he has a whole different hand now, <laughs> which would change your handwriting. Possibly. No, it would change your handwriting. (laughs) And then uh, the quality of the exemplars determines the quality of a comparison analysis, and good exemplars are hard to come by. Uh Uh-huh. So, are you ready for this story? Oh, yes. So that was just setting the stage so that we know that we know more about what handwriting analysis is, what techniques go into it. It is a scientific or at least a structured method, so you do have professionals who do it. Whether or not it could should be the end-all, be-all doesn't seem like it, but it does sound like it can give you some some more insight. I would say it would be a supporting document more than... Actual evidence? Yeah. Yeah. But are you ready for some Nazi stuff? I'm always ready <laughs> for Nazi stuff. All right. While an expert analyst can detect many instances of forgery, a good simulation can be undetectable. Okay, like a AI? No. One example of a forgery the experts missed is the case of the lost Hitler diaries. Oh, no. Although there's a good reason why they missed it. This is fascinating. That's why I kept this whole story in, so buckle in, guys. In the 1980s, a man named Conrad Kujeu, sorry, I know that's not how you pronounce it, but that's how it's spelled. A supposed collector of Nazi memorabilia approached a German publishing company with 60 handwritten journals purported to be written by Adolf Hitler that had, according to Kujeo, been just been discovered in the wreckage of an airplane that had left Germany after World War II. All right. So they found a cache of private diaries. Burn them. The text seemed to be genuine. And Kujeo, Kujeo, oh, I can't even remember how I said it. Kujeo? Kujau? Kujau? Is it German? Conrad Kujau? Eh, I'd go with Kujau. Well, let's see if I can remember that the next time his name comes <laughs> up. All right, the text seems to be genuine, and Kujau had an apparently good reputation. So the publishing company paid $2.3 million for the lot. The diaries were immediately published in installment form in the German newspaper owned by the same publishing company, and syndication rights were sold to several international publications, including the London Times. It was the Times that requested a professional handwriting analysis to ensure authenticity. What year was this? In the 1980s. Uh, that is too recent to be like, hey, let's publish Nazi stuff. It's, yeah, it is. Well, the plot thickens. Three international experts in forensic handwriting analysis compared the diaries to exemplars that were apparently known to be written by Hitler. All agree that the diaries were written by the same person who wrote the exemplars. The diaries were for real. <laughs> I think I know where this is going to go. You like go. it? I haven't, I didn't change anything, so thank you how, what did I say, how stuff works? Because mm-hmm. the way that they wrote this, I'm just like, I love this. I'm just eating it up. Okay, <laughs> so the diaries were for real. It was an analysis of the ink and paper used to write the diaries that revealed them as fakes. 
I love this, but I didn't go into the science behind this part because that takes us too far away from what we're doing. But I love this. An ultraviolet light examination revealed that the paper contained an ingredient that wasn't used in paper until 1954. Hitler died in 1945. Further forensic tests on the ink showed that it had been applied to the paper within the last 12 months. Yeah. As it turns out, the handwriting analysis was in fact correct. Because the exemplars were fake. Yes, because <laughs> the person who'd written the diaries was also the person who wrote the exemplars. <laughs> yeah. And they later found out that this guy was who had tur- turned out to be an experienced con artist who also forged the exemplars the police were using as comparison documents. Ta-da! I'm torn on this because anybody who's buying Hitler works to publish them deserves to get fleeced out of a lot of money. I agree. Uh, but uh, guy forging stuff and saying, oh, this is Hitler stuff. Uh, you want it. Uh, I don't know how I feel about that guy. He cornered a market he knew he could get away with. And yeah. the amazing thing about this story is, yes, they're, everybody's garbage in the story. But the amazing thing is that he didn't just trip up a couple of people along the process. There was a huge process involved in this. International process with multiple publication companies and international experts in forensic handwriting analysis and every step of the way until they started testing the paper and the ink everybody fell for it yeah i'd like to know how he planted the exemplars me too i want i actually want a movie franchise about that yes all right so oceans third reich okay so f10 (laughs) (laughs) i want it to be about how he planted these exemplars y'all can do it yeah i mean they they went to space in nine so they go back in time in ten well, there were cars in the 80s. Now I want them to go back in time with the, their new cars. Okay. All right. So I thought that was really cool because of just how good of a con this was. Yeah. It sucks that it was all Nazi stuff. I do like that people who wanted to print Nazi stuff got taken for a lot of money, though. I do like that. All right. So now back to the X-Files. But oh, is that what we're doing? We're all a little bit smarter now. <laughs> Okay, so now we go to the football field. It is the muddiest football field I have ever seen. Mulder is watching his dead partner's kid practice football, which isn't creepy at all. No, and he's holding the note from his dead partner's kid's killer. Yes. Which adds an extra layer of not creepy to it. Yep. And now, if he had stayed in touch with this family and was like Uncle Mulder... Yeah. Totally different scenario. We've never heard of this guy before. (laughs) We've never heard of this child before. It would have taken one line of dialogue to set that up, though. So... Yes! Even not hearing of him before, we could have... We could have done it. Yeah. There were... Let's see, Mulder was the fourth person sitting on that those bleachers. There were four or five people, including Mulder, sitting on those bleachers. So <laughs> yeah. it's not like he was lost in the crowd either. Right. Just bonkers. Just a single man watching children. <laughs> not the only one, either. No! Oh, gosh. Every, ugh. <laughs> I didn't think about that. <laughs> All right, we'll get to that in a minute. Mulder leaves. He walks to his car because, <laughs> I said, because no one needs to watch random football practice. <laughs> no. I was feeling some kind of way about this. Someone broke into his car again, and instead of leaving a cassette tape, they left a note. He needs to lock his car better. He yells, I'll get you, you son of a bitch. 
And two of the adults from the bleachers turn and look at him like they didn't just yell the same thing at the children practicing. <laughs> <laughs> and a third person turned and looked at him, too. Yes. Which was Barnett. It was just a guy. We saw his hands. He just had hands. It was just a hand guy. Cloudy eyes. He's a handy guy. Cloudy dead eyes. I am out of it, so here we go. <laughs> and since we know it's Barnett, and we've all watched the episode, so we know that she, he should have a salamander hand. Yes. He did not have a salamander no. hand. And all it would have taken was gloves. Yep. They really botched this. You know what? Nobody needs to go see football practice, <laughs> including everybody involved in this scene. Football, Children's football practice is bad for everybody. <laughs> Especially the children playing football. Oh my gosh, yes. All right, so next, after Mulder causes a scene in the street, he goes to the FBI headquarters. Mulder goes to Purdue with all his feelings. Purdue closes his office door and tells him a story Mulder has heard before. So when Mulder has his little outburst, he's like, yep. I, this is what I feel. Mm -hmm. And Purdue gets up. Reggie. Reggie gets up. He waves some other guy out of the office. <laughs> what was that guy doing there? <laughs> He was just sitting on the couch playing Game Boy. I'm wondering if there was a whole scene here and they just cut for time. But Could be. This That'd guy be... had to move, you know, get out. Because <laughs> he was not interacting with them at all no. in what we saw. <laughs> he was just hanging out in the corner. So I wonder if... Going it... through Mulder's porn collection. Oh, God. <laughs> he was... That's just, just in there. There's a filing cabinet. He will check it out. <laughs> This is not a good work environment. <laughs> ah, July 1987. <laughs> this was a good one. Uh, oh, now it makes me remember when we found all of your porn in one of your boxes. <laughs> <laughs> ah, they're just old Playboys. <laughs> well, he has a Playboy from the year he was born. The month I was born. Yes. <laughs> I like looking through them, no joke, for how old the ads are. Yeah. <laughs> There's just like cigarette ads everywhere. <laughs> I mean, they got put away again, but maybe we'll look at them again. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Mulder's rubbing off on us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so Spooky Mulder has become an embarrassment, a liability. And then Purdue insinuates that it's probably some... Oh, did you catch this? It's probably someone in the bureau who's doing this to Mulder. And I said, that's pretty fucked up since the first note accompanied a dead saleswoman. <laughs> yeah, it's wild. And that accusation goes nowhere. nowhere. It's just mind boggling that he would even suggest that. I can't. Hey, hey, spooky. <laughs> <laughs> spooky, somebody's messing with you by killing people. By murdering just some women trying to do their job. The FBI would never do. Well, the FBI would never murder anybody. Well, Mulder thinks so because later he's like, you're going to work with someone who's killed people. <laughs> <laughs> Mulder's, Mulder doesn't know who he works for in this, <laughs> this show. Clearly not. I was going to say episode, but no, this whole show. Well, they're, they're doing all of this. Wild accusations are flying. I hope that guy got his porn. <laughs> And Tiny Scully walks in and brings details of Barnett being cremated and his ashes scattered. Did you? Tiny Scully? <laughs> yeah. Look, it's in my notes. <laughs> okay. So, I have a question for you, though. Because we just saw 
beyond the sea. Yeah. And when they scattered Lieutenant Colonel Scully, right? Lieutenant Colonel Scully's ashes, they had a song playing. Captain. Captain? I couldn't remember. We've had a couple of military folks. They were playing a song while scattering his ashes. What song do you think was playing when the (laughs) crematorium worker scattered Barnett's ashes? Uh, Whatever was on his Walkman. (laughs) Because that's what they said. Some guy at the crematorium scattered the ashes, like, out back. Yeah, in 1989. So, like, uh, welcome to the jungle. That'd be good. It's a couple years early, but... He would have it, then. He would have access to it. All right. I was trying to think of something that came out in 89. Oh, (laughs) Vanilla Ice. That's what it was. Beautiful. Love Ice it. Ice Baby came out in 1989. Canon. Yeah. Stamp it with the Canon stamp. Canon stamp. All right. So we're in the computer lab and there's, they're basically aging up and adding facial hair to a picture. They're just doing a bunch of stuff that they couldn't have done in 1994. Age up. Could have. Add, add 20 pounds. Healthy 20 pounds. Yeah. yeah well, that's important. Not, not just a... You know, don't add 20 pounds to his nose or just his eyebrows. <laughs> just his ears. <laughs> he just has floppy eyebrows. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor guy. Well, he can't use like his eyes. like a Sharpay. He can't use his eyes anyway after a while. So <laughs> it's just protecting that gushy part. <laughs> so anyway, that's what they're doing. And we have a flashback scene to the courtroom when they had caught Barnett. It's an exposition scene about the night we saw the video. The judge and prosecutor look appalled when Mulder says Barnett shot the other agent in the face. Like they didn't know. Like this is the first time they heard it. No. no, but They both just look. There's the prosecution had no idea what Barnett had done. No, it was wild. Their mouths were just hanging open. They shot him in the face? <gasps> like Mr. Mulder. Um, why is this guy why a are defendant? We, why are we here? What's going on here? Can you explain to me? I I just got hired this morning. This is just another scene where Mulder is ill-equipped to do his job. He loses his in the witness box. He's yelling in the courtroom. He allows Barnett to know he has the upper hand. He said, good job, Mulder. It's yeah. exactly what you want to do. He gives a reason for not shooting, which is a perfectly yes. good reason. I skipped that because he just it started is. yelling. Yeah, it's his reason for not shooting Barnett is absolutely reasonable yeah and then he turns around and becomes absolutely unreasonable directly after yes and we do see kissy faces in this episode but unfortunately it's not kissy face molar it's kissy face barnett which i could have lived without and after and barnett says i'll get you in a haunting way as he does kissy faces to molar how dare this man make a kissy face at the kissy face king. I'm glad you wrote a note. Yep, there it is. The kissy face king. Yep. I was also unhappy. But there's a goof in this scene just to alleviate some of the tension that Mulder has caused by screaming at everybody while he's on the stand. <laughs> the judge orders Mulder from the witness stand without allowing Barnett's lawyer to cross-examine him, which is a violation of Barnett's rights under the Sixth Amendment. Mm-hmm. So, look, we're all getting smarter. Yeah. Hey everybody, it's Dave. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Whether it's your first time or you've been with us since the pilot, we always appreciate you spending time with us. Are you a podcaster who wants to cross-promote? Send me an email with your promo at thecastfiles, that's the with two E's, at gmail.com. And now, check out this 
promo from the Shonen Flop Podcast. Dragon Ball Z, One Piece, Naruto, all things that we love, all manga that were originally published in the legendary magazine Weekly Shonen Jump. But not every series can run for 300 chapters and have a hit anime. This is David. This is Jordan. We're the hosts of Shonen Flop. Each episode, we look at manga that ran and jumped that didn't quite make it. We discuss what it did wrong, what it did right, how the series could have turned itself around, and ultimately, was it a flop or not? Run all your favorite podcast apps, and you can find us at shonenflop.com. Keep on flopping, floppers. Now, out of the flashback, Scully says Barnett died of a heart attack. At least that's what it said on his death certificate. But she did some calling around on a whim or gut instinct or whatever. And although uh, Barnett had all that written down, he was actually in the infirmary for a hand infection. From getting shot. Oh, was that why? Yep. Okay, that was always just like, oh, he just has a hand infection. <laughs> no, Mulder, Mulder got him in the shoulder and the hand. That's right. The hand got I, infected. I never put that together. I was just like, <laughs> I guess dude's just got a crazy ingrown nail. I don't know. <laughs> the worst hang nail of all time. I was just like, sure. <laughs> and six months prior to his death, he had a clean bill of health. And I said, how thorough and accurate do you think those are in prisons, though? Oh, not at all. Probably just in general in 1994, there's a whole lot of things you're not seeing. So I did look up, I don't have a whole science corner or anything, but from prisonpolicy.org, I just pulled it from there, so do some more research, please. This isn't the end-all be-all. But what it says is people in prisons and jails are disproportionately likely to have chronic health problems, including diabetes, high blood pressure, and HIV, as well as substance use and mental health problems. Nevertheless, correctional health care is low quality and difficult to access. I wonder if that's all related. Right. Yes. But I quoted them without doing a ton of extra work on their website because it all sounds accurate. And please fact check it before you're going and doing anything with this. But in general, it seems reasonable for the... So we had a clean bill of health. Are they just giving them checkups in 1990, 1990, I guess? They probably do physicals. Not yearly, Probably not every year, but every few years they probably get physicals. He has a... I would hope. I, I was just like, ah, that's, this doesn't sound... It sounds like there would be something on the books, but I don't know how realistic Also, six months earlier, clean bill of health, why is his gunshot hand infected? That's a good question. How long has he been there, and how long has it been infected? And At least six months. Ugh. He's just gross. I think he's just gross. <laughs> he's just got his open gunshot wound rubbing it on everything. Yeah. Neat. He's just a gross boy. Okay. I don't like this character. I Okay, so the actor, I said this while we were watching it. I don't know... I don't know him in other things. I don't recognize him, even though I said he was in some other stuff. But this character that he's playing... I do not ever want to hear him on the phone ever again. Oh, that's the young one. Yeah, but it's still him. Okay. All right. <laughs> My bad. All I'm right. I was thinking about the older version. <laughs> well, now we're in Tajmu Federal Correctional Facility, which is where we were at the opening. Mulder and Scully visit Crandall from the first scene, and he tells them immediately that Barnett was awake or alive, and Dr. Ridley threatened him with a knife. This guy doesn't even demand anything. <laughs> he doesn't say, yes, I got information for you, put some money in my commissary, or I could really use a toothbrush. TV he, privileges. Nothing. He just says, oh, yeah. Well, that's because they all already just let him roll all around the prison. <laughs> he already has. <laughs> no chaperone. He has all of the, he has access to everything. He doesn't need anything. He's got a pretty sweet life. 
I mean, for a guy in a wheelchair in prison, I guess. He seems like he has, you're right, he has access to everything he could want. <laughs> anyway, my, my whole point was, he doesn't even hesitate. But remember, he was threatened with a scalpel to the throat <laughs> in the first scene. Yep. And now he's just, oh yeah, here's exactly what happened. Did nobody ever ask? Probably not. Probably not. They were like, ah, prisoner died, cremate him. Huh. All right. That's all I have about that scene. <laughs> okay. We're back at the FBI headquarters. Mulder gets a call from Barnett. Barnett is teasing Mulder while the camera gets all up in Barnett's facial pores. This was not shot to be that close <laughs> and in such high definition. And then Barnett threatens Mulder and Mulder says he was hip to the trace. So, Science Corner with Kristen. About hips? No. Traces? Yes. So this time I went to How to Geek and I asked... How long does it take to trace a call? And the answer is that it used to take a long time to trace a call because the process was so manual. Mm -hmm. You had your circuit boards and you had the people plugging in certain things to go to different places and rerouting and everything. So it did used to take a while and it helped to have people on the phone. However, eventually computerization took hold in the telecommunications sector. Gradually, it took over tasks like routing calls that were previously performed by human or mechanical operators. And this trend was a watershed moment. From a consumer perspective, it allowed new conveniences like caller ID and call waiting. And from a law enforcement perspective, it simplified investigations. Calls no longer have to be traced manually across switches, nor did law enforcement have to monitor calls in real time. They could simply look at the metadata generated by calls. Oh, neat. And then we gave them the permission and ability to just do that whenever they wanted. That's why they want to seize all records. Ugh. Yep. Gross. Yep. A cab. Yes. <laughs> the science part's cool. The accessibility to the wrong people is not cool. We go to Agent Reggie Purdue's house. Mulder calls Purdue in the middle of the night. He says, it's 1045. <laughs> As the most relatable thing that's happened on this show so far. It really is. 10.45, oh my god, why are you calling me? I've been asleep for two hours. <laughs> it was so good, and the delivery was perfect. <laughs> Mulder, why are you calling me? It's the middle of the night. It's 10.45. It doesn't matter. I was asleep. Why are you calling me? Stop. <laughs> While Purdue is distracted on the phone, the scene gets darker. A man walks into the background in the dark, and I just wanted it to be his lover coming to bed. But, alas. His Purdue... lover died six years ago. Yes, I didn't know that at the point. <laughs> uh, Purdue is killed by strangling, although it takes at least two minutes on average to strangle a person to death. Not when you have... However, hold on. Okay. It can take only five to ten seconds to knock somebody out in a stranglehold, mm -hmm. but it takes at least two minutes on average, to kill somebody by strangulation. And the reason that I know this is because I was listening to Homicide Worldwide's podcast <laughs> about how what happens to people when they die. And that was fascinating because I didn't know what the timing was. So now you guys know too. This episode is so educational. <laughs> <laughs> it might as well be Schoolhouse Rock. Yes. Without the rock, I suppose. I guess not. You should do that underneath somewhere. I'm an amendment to be. Yes, an amendment to be. And I'm hoping that they're ratifying me. <laughs> and I said, the perp is wearing gloves and throws a note at Purdue's body. And Mulder yells into the phone because he's still on the other end. Uh, but the perp is not wearing gloves. This is the first shot we have of Salamander Hand. He doesn't have gloves? No, he's got Salamander Hand. Dang it. That's I... why he's able to kill him so fast. 
Salamander hands got that powerful grip. I did not look up the grip strength of a salamander. <laughs> a human-sized salamander. I guess they can... Uh, you know what? If you want to know more about strangulation, go to that episode of Homicide Worldwide. They break it down tremendously, and I think they even include how much strength it takes, <laughs> nice. which is a thing that I don't have written down. But it took zero seconds <laughs> for him to die. It was instant. <laughs> Well, um, later, the whole team is digging through Purdue's bedroom. Scully isn't convinced it's Barnett. Mulder is convinced. They have some dialogue back and forth about how it is and how it isn't. And, oh, and Scully wants them to analyze every speck of lint in the entire house. And if they get nothing, run it again. And I'm like, they've put in the big bucks for the cops, man. Yeah, it's, she also says that because she doesn't have to do the work. Yes. Yeah, I would not want to do that. I also would not want to do handwriting analysis, which is the next scene. Yay, Henderson again. Yep, but that's all I wrote. Just more handwriting analysis. <laughs> ah, okay. She does point out, and I only caught it the second time around, she points out that uh, whoever wrote it doesn't have fingerprints. Yes, she did. You're right. And that was very interesting because after we had watched the first... So I was thinking, well, they must have just been wearing gloves or something. And she probably said why that wasn't the case, because the smudging was different. Yeah, something I think that's smudging. what it was. She does a really good job of, as much as I'm blowing over her scenes, one, she plays this character phenomenally. Two, I've already done all of the handwriting analysis, I feel like, doing for the episode, <laughs> so that's kind of why I'm blowing over it. But she covers a lot of things that we covered in our Science Corner. Yeah. Because whoever wrote these lines... Did their work. Did, did some sort of background research, which... I appreciate so. Either Scott Coffer or Chris Carter. <laughs> so I do love that. I do want to give everybody props who was involved in that. Amazing. Because unlike in Space. Yeah. When it was. No. It, uh, Ghost in the Machine. Well, no. I was thinking Space when they took a lot of the. Tra it sounded like they might not have done it this way. But it sounded like they took a lot of transcripts of what the NASA had said. And then just kind of reset them. Okay. So said things that were were real. But. Maybe not was, in that situation. Yeah, it felt it felt a little it felt a little like a TV show. Yeah. In some of those scenes, the way that she delivers her lines, it sounds like she's actually a forensic handwriting analyst. But yes, also goes to the machine. They were just making stuff up. Yeah. Which, to be fair, if you're making a an AI of that capacity, here's the thing that they should have done. They should have just leaned into it. I think the problem in that episode is that they were trying to be as close to realistic as they could be for some pieces and then just it was wild in others and i think if they had leaned into it just gone over everybody's head ended up being a robot it, <laughs> that comes out and tries to fight people no it could have still been the same machine taking over things but instead of trying to explain it in a way that the layman would understand okay i think they should have just gone over all of our heads unless you're an it specialist you wouldn't have known. Kind of like on TV now where we have the procedurals, the, the cop procedurals or courtroom procedurals and the medical. I know some shows have experts on staff, but we wouldn't know just as the layperson. Right, but you're missing that the reason it's so ridiculous is because the writers didn't know anything about computers whatsoever. No, I'm not missing it. I think they should have just gone extra. Well, okay. But just you're made saying, it up. Okay, I misunderstood what you were saying then. They... They've, everybody's seen Star Wars, unfortunately. Hate comments, hate comments. I'm just saying they should have gone way over the top. If you can't do it justice like these scenes, just go big. You're already in an alien show. 
So then we go to the X-Files office, and Scully discovered that according to the AMA, Dr. Ridley, who signed Barnett's death certificate, hasn't officially been a doctor since 1979. And do you know why that's a problem? Because 10 years later, he's a doctor at a prison? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Ding, ding, ding. It's also a problem that they just now decided to look into this guy. Yeah. He should have been the next stop after Crandall. Yes. Also... It gets worse as to why no one's looked into this guy yet in this whole scenario because they go to the National Institutes of Health and the NIH doctors show them a video of Dr. Ridley working with an eight-year-old girl with progeria. Dr. Ridley was called Dr. Mingal. Mangala. Mangala. I was looking, I was thinking of doctor too much because he made, he's enunciated it in a way. Behind his back and... Ridley went ahead with human trials without following any of the safety or ethics protocols. And when they discovered him, he fled to South America. Yeah. So he's a Nazi doctor. Yeah. They straight up call him Mengele. Yeah. And then he's doing stuff that Mengele did. Mm-hmm. And then he goes to South America. I don't know if Mengele survived World War II, though. I don't know. I don't remember. This is not a history podcast. Not yet. <laughs> but I do have a little bit of trivia on this scene. The footage of the young girl with progeria was filmed after the production crew contacted the Progeria Society and were put in touch with a family of Courtney Arciega. Uh, She was a young girl with the disease. She and her family were fans of the series and were flown from their San Diego home to Vancouver to shoot the scene. Oh, that's great. That's nice because I recognized her from like health class. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I, was, I, I straight up was like, oh, her. I hope she was treated well on this shoot. <laughs> yeah, apparently it sounds it sounds like it from this little bit of behind the scenes information. Yeah, I'm happy to hear that. Yeah, that they were fans. I love that. I think that little bit of trivia makes this whole scene Yeah, much, much better. Yeah. Um, later we are in Scully's apartment. She's exposition field writing. Throughout her voiceover, we hear noises in the background. Her report states... Ridley's notes from the human trials at NIH indicate he didn't see aging as inevitable, but as an opportunistic disease. A disease that could be prevented, reversed even, by changing the chemical cues that trigger certain genes. However, there is no evidence whatsoever that Ridley's work yielded any results or that his theories, all hope to the contrary, hold any validity. According to the leading scientific journals, projections on this kind of genetic engineering are at best speculative and futuristic. One of the things I appreciate about this scene, she's just writing notes. She's not doing a profile. Yes, she's doing field notes. As Scully is clearing her house, oh, because she's heard all of the noises and she goes and gets her handgun, which you didn't like she didn't have on her, but it was like two steps away from her. Yeah, one of the things I did not appreciate about this scene was that she did not have her handgun on her when she has been threatened personally. I guess the personal threat changes it somewhat, but I do feel that it's fine to have your gun within a foot or two while you're at home. <laughs> Turned around, looking at your computer, and anybody can just come up and grab that thing. She's not living her life as a victim, man. She's not. She's about to. Stop, Moses. <laughs> that's, that's new. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so she's clearing her house, and there's a knock on her door. We see Barnett inside Scully's house in the dark, and Scully goes to answer the door. It's dun-dun-dun, the Nazi doctor, Dr. Joe Ridley. Now, the second thing I appreciate about this scene, the music. 
Yeah. It is some sort of weird Russian chess music <laughs> that is ridiculous, has no place in this scene whatsoever. It's not tense at all. <laughs> but I love it. I love it so much. I tried to Shazam it so I could get the song. Oh, that's funny. Shazam had no idea what it was. Oh, man. Well, I thought you were going to say you liked that when she opens the door, she points the gun at his face. I did not like that. <laughs> you didn't? I, 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 I said out loud the second time, I was like, D- do you answer the door like this all the time? <laughs> I think it makes sense. You didn't like that she's not walking around her house armed. Yeah. And I think opening your door... When you're not expecting anybody to show up, eh, open it and point your gun in their face. Yeah. The guy who's roaming around her apartment freely, no, he's fine. Let him go. Anybody who knocks on your door to announce that they're there, gun in face. Yeah. What do you think I do when you're not here? (laughs) (laughs) If you stalk around this place with a gun, I'm impressed. And cosign. Man, the days are long. Gotta pass the time some way. (laughs) Barnett sneaks away in the shadows. And and I wrote, Scully's floors are silent. (laughs) We have spots in this house that if you get anywhere, if you think about walking near them, they creak. Right in front of my dresser drawers. Yes. Oh, it's so loud. And then there's, there's a stair. I don't, there's a couple of places that just make so much noise. And he's sneaking away on his stockinged feet. I've decided they're stockings. (laughs) (laughs) Just silent. I don't know where he went. Did he crawl through a window? I think he's just hanging out in a closet. Did he stick down the side of the building, but he only has one sticky hand? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Nice. It's complicated. I think he's got a hidey hole in there somewhere because he's just in there later, too. He found, um, he found Stretchy Boy's hidey holes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. Later, Mulder, Scully, and Dr. Ridley are sitting around Scully's apartment. Dr. Ridley has cloudy eyes. He explains his work. The main thing to note is Barnett is the only one who survived the trials. So let that sink in. Human trials, the only one to survive. He makes some quip about if he didn't hate the guy so much, then he would be his like magnum opus or something. His one yeah. triumph, I think. But the treatment doesn't work on eyes. So the eyes are aging uh, while the rest of him is thriving. You know what? Live your best life, man. Right? He is. He is thriving with his salamander hand. Ridley, do you want to be Dr. Ridley or Scully in this quick Ooh. little bit? There's only three lines. I'll go uh, I'll go Ridley. I think I can bring something to this. Go for it. And now for Cast Files Theater. My work has cost me dearly. I am an outcast in the medical community. I was called Dr. Mengele. Actually, he mispronounces it and says Mingil. <laughs> Dr. Frankenstein. But I didn't care. Because you knew that if your theories panned out... The man who owns the fountain of youth controls the world. When the AMA censured me, certain sponsors came out of the woodwork. One of them is the U.S. government. That was Cast Files Theater. This is the time that Mulder's like, What? (laughs) The government? Doing bad things? He's always so surprised. And I love how he says my work... Okay, my work costs me dearly. Meanwhile, he looks exactly the same as he did in 1954 or whenever that first video was supposed to show up. Yeah, but he's dying of, like, vascular Now, disease. he wasn't. He is now. Yeah, well, 
still earlier than he should be dying. Whatever. He has been doing human trials on people, including that little eight-year-old girl we saw. <laughs> yes. So, die already. Well, he didn't say it didn't cost anybody else. That's true. It cost me and a bunch of other people <laughs> dearly. Yeah, that doesn't roll off the tongue very well. I am horrible. And now I'm dying. Feel sorry for me because I want to own the Fountain of Youth and control the world. I just want to control the Fountain of Youth. Have you been to the Fountain of Youth? If we didn't go, then no. That's why I was Is wondering. Is it in St. Augustine? Yeah. I thought so, yeah. I don't think we went. I don't think we went either. I have been to the Fountain of Youth, and I do not look the same as when I first went there. Oh, are you younger? No. Oh, okay. It's a rotten egg-smelling ploy. Oh. Unfortunately. Next, we go to Gertie's Bar, which is where you always go after you're called out to your partner's house in the middle of the night. I wrote down Gertie's Bar, too. Is this the same bar that we first saw the bathroom troll in? I don't know. Yeah, I couldn't tell, because it's definitely shot from a different angle. It is. Yeah, I'm not sure. Deep Throat is just trying to have a night out. <laughs> <laughs> but here's Mulder needing more help. Our government is bargaining with Barnett to buy Dr. Purdue's research, which he stole at some point. And Mulder is shocked that the U.S. government is bargaining with him. And I said, it's getting a little tired. Yeah, him being so naive? Yes. Yeah. I do appreciate, though, that Bathroom Troll doesn't give him a straight answer when he asks if Barnett's going to win or something. And he doesn't say, well, yeah. <laughs> no, I said that. <laughs> <laughs> right. He says, he holds all the cards. Yeah. Well, that's not an answer. Thank you. Thank you, Bathroom Troll. Yes. So we're back in Scully's apartment. She's, I guess it's the next day, because it looks like there's, yeah, she's getting ready for work. She's in the shower, and the phone rings, so she, and then, at first I was confused when I watched it. The second time it made a lot more sense. The phone rings, she gets out of the shower, and just stares at her answering machine, and I was like, why did you get out of the shower to just stare at your answering machine and not answer your phone? But someone has called in to play her answering machine. Yeah. So... I was very slow on the uptake on that one, but when was the last time you saw an actual physical answering machine? <laughs> Giving myself a little bit of leeway there. So then she goes into the X-Files office and has her machine checked and finds one of Barnett's fingerprints on the underside. Barnett calls and breathes and groans into the phone and then threatens Mulder and, and all of his friends and his little dog too. And Mulder says, you're not that smart. And he's not. He could have killed Scully already. Yep. So, no, he's not that smart. And then, <laughs> for some reason, oh, I think Mulder says something to him, and he says, he yells, This is the home of the free! <laughs> and I was like, I, I hate this character so much. <laughs> Mulder! Ugh. He just is groaning into the phone. It's, it's like he's either masturbating on the other side of the phone or he's gonna ask him what his favorite scary movie is it's one or the other mm. and then it's neither and i'm like you're disappointed he wasn't masturbating <laughs> bored now <laughs> <laughs> uh Mulder believes barnett is coming after scully so they head to the recital hall okay so one of the <laughs> one of the voice messages was from her mom <laughs> <laughs> We had a nice little riff amongst ourselves. We can't recreate it. No, but so her mom was just calling to check in. And then another was a friend reminding Scully that they are going to meet before her cello recital. Scully hangs out with a cellist. I think in DC it makes sense. 
I feel like my aunt and uncle probably knew people who had recitals oh, okay. when they lived in D.C. So at first I was like, that's super fancy. And then I was like, oh, you probably just know a lot of people. There's so many people and people and people in that town. All right. Anyway. Yeah, I don't fun. know anybody anymore. So it's oh, hard to judge. No, me neither. It's just me and the cats and whoever's sneaking around the house while I'm <laughs> pointing my gun at people who are at the door. <laughs> Uh, next, we're at J.D. Taylor Memorial Recital Hall. Uh, there's lots of security. Scully is the bait. Barnett is the guy tuning the piano, but no one knows because he's younger than anyone here has ever seen him. And he's... <laughs> he's not wearing gloves. He's just got his salamander hand out when he's tuning the piano. Okay. Because we see his giant gloves later, and I was like, okay, one, impressed that he somehow taught himself to tune, tune a piano pianos. Just to, in a day or so. You know, like, in a day. And there's no YouTube. How does he know? <laughs> so when this is all over and somebody starts playing the piano, it sounds terrible. <laughs> clink, 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 clink. He just loosened some stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Tightened some other stuff. But he is actually tuning it because he's doing something and hitting the keys. He's tuning a piano. Yep. Just what? <laughs> <sighs> but anyway. And I know, and by the way, my YouTube comment isn't that you could learn to tune a piano, but at least you could figure out what motions you're supposed to make you know to pretend that you're doing it but he didn't even have that what do you do go to the library check out a book and follow some diagrams sure or he was just literally just cranking on things and... i like to think that he is a fantastic piano tuner <laughs> <laughs> they never say what he did before he started robbing banks it's true it's true maybe his wind down time was just playing some tunes anyway he shoots scully in front of everyone and runs away it's a trick of the angle or something like that, but when he pulls out his giant hand cannon, it looks like Scully grabs somebody to pull them in the way. Oh, really? <laughs> that's what I rewound to have you watch. <laughs> and that's when I was just like looking toward the TV and <laughs> yeah. my brain wasn't functioning. It's, it's gotta be just the angle because she's, she yells, GUN! And then... I guess she was pushing him, but it looks like she's grabbing him. <laughs> That's funny. That's so funny. Oh, he, uh, so after he shoots her, he runs through the, I was going to say facility, through the theater, and grabs the cello woman, holds her hostage. We're recreating the scene from the video that we saw before, because Mulder comes in, and they are basically, the guy's just taunting him. I've totally blanked on his name. Burnett's taunting him. He's like, Hey, Mulder, what you gonna do? Are you gonna shoot me? Shoot Mulder. me! It's just awful. And But we know that Mulder's not gonna... He might hesitate briefly, but he's not gonna not shoot this guy because he no longer follows the rules. But uh, Barnett doesn't know that. That's Barnett right. knows him as the guy who follows the rules and lets me kill people. And you know what? I said... <laughs> But this time, Mulder says, screw the rules, and shoots the guy in the forehead, which isn't actually what happens, but I didn't know that until the next scene. Yeah, because his chest isn't really available to be shot. No, and I have some stuff on that in just a minute. Okay. And, oh, by the way, Scully is fine. She's wearing a bulletproof vest. She's bruised. And I'm glad that they acknowledge she would be bruised in the next scene. Yeah. Because so many times, they shoot people in the chest, and then they're like, ha ha, just kidding. I was wearing a bunch of books taped to myself and <laughs> and it saved me and I'm good as new. When really, you could still have broken ribs. Mm, it's still <laughs> a lot of force hitting you. There's, there's a lot of, even if you're not broken, it's gonna hurt. So I appreciate that. 
Also, a little bit of trivia, this is the first time that Scully is shot. Oh, I guess that there's multiple times that Scully's shot then. I mean, there are like 11 seasons, so I figure she's going to be at least shot at another time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that was your trivia? No, it was from IMDb. I didn't even think about that. I was just like, yeah, of course. I mean, Mulder's already been shot. At least once. Yeah, he was fine the next episode. Yeah, he sure was. It was a, you know, upper femur thrown through. Yeah. Uh, the next scene is at the hospital, and I said, oh, never mind, Mulder shot Barnett in the shoulder? I can't tell. He dies on the table. We see his lizard hand. Lizard hand. It's all fine. <laughs> <laughs> but here is, so that's how I felt about that scene, but here is a revealing mistake from IMDb, and I wish they would attribute it because I would love to attribute this to whoever actually wrote it, but around 43 minutes, young Barnett is seen in the hospital with a bullet wound to his left shoulder. That's exactly. Received from the shot fired at him by Mulder. However, his left shoulder was earlier hidden behind the hostage, so could not have been the target of Mulder's shot. Only his right shoulder was visible, which could have been the target of the only shot fired at him by Mulder. However, a shot fired at his shoulder could not have incapacitated him the way that was depicted, which could only have been possible with a shot aimed at his head, which is why I was like, oh, he shot him in the head because of how his body flew back. And the way that they shoot the scene... It's the gunshot, then Barnett's face for like a second or two, and I was expecting a drizzle. Yeah, me too. Okay. So that's why I was like, shot him in the head? Oh, no, wait, no, what? Yeah. So that's why, and so I was very happy to be validated. So thank you, mystery person. But as seen in the hospital, his head is completely injury-free. However, a shot fired at his shoulder should have also given him a strong backward thrust, which was not seen. Hmm. So whoever spent the time to write down all of this, thank you. The uh, strong backward thrust thing, though, that's a myth. Gunshots, the bullet just goes straight through you, so there's no force pushing you back. Mm. Mythbusters proved it. Did you write it down so you could read it to us? Yes. Well, go ahead. Mythbusters proved it. (laughs) No, I meant how. I wanted more information. Okay, go watch it. Because the bullet just, it goes through you. There's no, it's (gasps) not like getting hit with a hammer. Yeah. I want a ballistic dummy. That's what they did. They hung a ballistic dummy on like like a real loose thing, so like any force would knock it off, and just bullet just goes through. Okay. There's no backwards force to it. I will watch ballistic dummies. I think they're so cool looking. Unless you're a president getting shot in the back of the head, and then your brains fly out the front, and your head goes backwards, back and to the left, back and to the left. We're not doing this. Back <laughs> and to the left. Nope. So the next scene we see. <laughs> This is not important at all, except it's very important. So I wrote it down. Okay. We see a woman with blonde hair. (laughs) (laughs) I watched for her the second time. Did you see her? Yeah. (laughs) She's on a phone, wearing bicycle shorts, cowboy boots, and a leather jacket. It's a good look. It's a really good look. And I just watched her both times. If they were trying to make her just a background character, she did not show up to be a background character. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, and Dr. Ridley's research is in a locker at the airport because eventually I caught up with what this scene was actually supposed to be about. <laughs> it was also, I loved this scene because the background characters are doing all of the work. So she dressed for this and you just watch her walk away. And then the security guy is standing there with a newspaper. Oh, is he a security guy? I just thought I, he was just a guy. Okay, I thought he was a security guy. He's just a big guy. He's a very conspicuous dude, though. Yes. And at one point in whatever the the voiceover, he just like flips his newspaper down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, 
who are these people? I love them. Bring them on set every time. <laughs> every closing scene. <laughs> and Mulder believes that we haven't seen the last of Barnett. Which is such a weird statement. You know that he's dead. The IMDb trivia section does think that this is the last we've seen of Barnett because it says <laughs> this is the first episode where Mulder actually, actually kills someone. <laughs> <laughs> so I liked that. And then um, do you have anything with that last scene? Because if not, I have two more little bits of trivia. Go for the trivia. All right. The CIA man in the background of the final scene, which I never saw, is William B. Davis because it's not the guy that we were pointing out who is the cigarette smoking man, and he's... Was it really? He's making his second appearance on the show, and like his first, there appears to be no dialogue. I actually huh. missed him both times, even knowing that the second time that I was looking for him. Huh. But I think I was typing, so whatever. The other bit of trivia is that Jillian Anderson was already pregnant in these episodes, although she did not show yet. Well, okay. Just in case somebody else knew that, I figured I should throw it in there. All right, so who are you shipping? I... I'm shipping Henderson and some hot young rookie. <laughs> Whichever one she wants. All right. That's, that should be illegal if it isn't. But Why? Because you shouldn't. I guess if she's, they're not in the same department. Yeah. Like, I was thinking like lab tech in her department. Oh, no, no. Like a field agent. Okay, that's yeah. fine. Yeah, hot young stud. All right, agent. yeah. that's how, She'll have fun with him. Oh, but she's going to break his heart. She's going to get so tired of him after a couple of weeks. But he's going to just keep showing up. And he's like, but Dr. Henderson, I love you. <laughs> yeah, he'll move on eventually and he'll look back on it with fondness. Yeah, she'll break his heart, but she won't actually mean to be. She's not doing it in a malicious way. It's yep. just it's how these things go, rookie. Yep. All right, who are you shipping? I'm shipping the last two people in the last scene, the blonde girl and the security guy, <laughs> because I want them to pair up and be around all the time. Nice. <laughs> they were so fun. Right. How are you surviving this? I am surviving. I'm going to get those research notes and stay young forever. I knew, yeah, I even told him that this was definitely his favorite episode by premise. <laughs> if not necessarily by execution, the premise is right up your alley. It's in locker 935. <laughs> you remember? Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to start searching every locker 935. <laughs> I'm going to live forever. Ugh, that sounds... Fame. Remember my name. Sounds so boring. Ugh, living forever. The world's just going to burn up around you. Yeah, then I can walk around and be all dramatic about it. You already do. you imagine how dramatic I could be, like, the only person on the wasteland? Yes, and I'm so glad I'll be dead. <sighs> You're going to miss me. Nope. All right, how am I going to survive? I feel like I wouldn't be in danger because I'm not friends with Mulder. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll be okay. That's all right. I mean, that really seemed to be the catalyst for everything after 89 and in 89 i was what six so i'm pretty sure i was fine <laughs> i was i was out of the out of the danger zone then and uh yeah well 94 people were in danger too oh that's true i was not in dc then okie doke well 16 episodes in all right we have now lasted as long as the mccarthy's it was a comedy about a sports crazed irish catholic family Starring Joey McIntyre from New Kids on the Block. What? <laughs> How many children did they have? If they're going to say Irish Catholic. I, I didn't look that deep into it. Well, you can look at the picture. You're looking at it. Yeah, it's a bunch of people named McCarthy. You're looking at that picture. Isn't that the family? I don't know. 
Oh, four kids doesn't seem like enough for that kind of a title. It's in HG, guys. <laughs> All right. That's it? There's no others? That's, yeah, 16 was a hard one. All right. Bye. <laughs> the Cast Files is produced by Kristen Riley and Dave Reed. Edited by Dave Reed. You can find us on Twitter at Cast Files. You can find me on Twitter at Dave Reed. That's D-A-I-V-E-R-E-E-D. You can email us at the Cast Files. That's the with two E's at gmail.com. If you could please go rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, give us five stars and tell us that we are doing phenomenal things. Artistic, wonderful things. We are raising the bar on podcasting. We would love you forever for that. We have a Tee Public store. You can go buy t-shirts and stuff there. Music by Hal Six. Logo by Atuka Art. That's O-O-K-A-A-R-T. 